never. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> that is, it's easiest, isn't it? Um, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to go with verses 1 and 2 today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Um, As is common, when we start a new sermon series, I like to show you all um, who are the people that are influencing the sermons, who the commentaries are that I'm reading, um, or who I'm trying to read. And uh, let's just go over these real quick. The first is John Calvin, of course. Calvin is there, and he's historically one of the best expositors of the scriptures that we know of. Um, And so we also have the ESV Study Bible. A lot of the notes in there are very helpful. If ever you can get an ESV Study Bible, I recommend it because it will help answer a lot of questions. Um, Hamilton from uh, the book of Genesis, that's the New International Commentary on the New Testament or the Old Testament. been very helpful in regards to all the information that comes with Genesis. Um, Matthews, Kenneth Matthews, also the New American Commentary, Genesis 1 through 11 through 26. Um, Boy Monet, Alan Ross, Creation and Blessing, a guide to the study and exposition of Genesis. Um, he has a lot of interesting thoughts. Wenham Gordon is considered the best in regards to Genesis. Um, so I picked him up. If you notice, a lot of these will say Genesis 1 through 15 because they don't cover all of Genesis because there's so much to unpack with Genesis. I also want to say all of this is Ellen's fault going forward. The reason why we're doing this is because of Ellen. So later on today, when we get into a lot of this that's really technical and really difficult and really hard, it's Ellen's fault. Um. (laughs) All right. So we went over the first two verses um, already. I accidentally had those out of order, so we can go ahead and skip those. Uh, All right. All right, so when we begin a new sermon series of a new book of the Bible, I begin by focusing on four things. Um, When it comes to Genesis, these four things are very, very, very complicated, unfortunately. A lot of pastors will ignore all of this and not tell you any of this. I am going to because I want you to be the smartest congregation on the planet. (laughs) And I also want you to suffer with me. Um, If I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer. All right, so the first thing that we always talk about is who the author was. Here begins the complications. Um, When it comes to Genesis, scholars agree that it goes along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These, along with Genesis, are considered what's called the Pentateuch, which means five books. Often they are also called the Law of Moses. Um, For most of Jewish and Christian tradition up until about 1800, Moses was the author. As it would happen, however, the tradition was challenged during the 18th through the 20th centuries. Scholars began to wonder if the books were all written by a single author, um, and they argued that it was not. The main focus came down to what is commonly referred to as JEPD. Each letter represents an editor or a writer who helped contribute to make the Pentateuch. So J stood for the Yahwist. E stood for the Elohist, uh, the P for the priestly writer, and D for the Deuteronomical writer. Have I lost y'all yet? (laughs) I think you got it. All right, so far, basically four editors. J was a person, E was a person, P was a person, and D was a person. Um, This is theorized. We're going to continue with that. (laughs) Yep. So each contributor, they would say, uh, could be seen by the various ways that they contributed to the books. Uh, The Yahwist, for example, is seen when the word Yahweh is used rather than uh, the Elohist, who would use the more general word for God. Yahweh was the covenant name for God, whereas Elohim is just a general term for God, the way that we use God. Um, And so they said, well, there's two different times that God is mentioned, therefore it must be two different people who are contributing. That's their logic. Um, 
It was from this that many believe that also the duplicate stories were brought together because they were from different sources who were concerned with different emphases. So a lot of people say, okay, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's two versions of the six days of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So they would say, oh, well, one contributed, and then the other one contributed, and then they, eventually they just all got brought together. Um, yeah, so... Likewise, there are those who argue that much of the Pentateuch was brought together of a way of syncretization. And as we know, to syncretize means to add one element of one religion and then syncretize it to another religion. Um, they believe that because Genesis stories resemble the pagan traditions, such as Enuma Elish, which was written in the Babylonian and Akkadian and all those, um, as well as Ahitashemas, I think is what it's called. Uh, at the time, the Jewish people were greatly influenced by them, by these different other thoughts, and they started to write their own in congruence with those. All right. There are many within this interpretation tradition, though, and conservative scholars outside of it who have begun to push back against the many assumptions found with what's being said here, what I'm talking about. One such critique um, is that it is likely that the various duplicates and differences were not by different authors, but simply different oral traditions that came down, um, which were pressed down through the tribes while in Egypt, for example. Another critique is that the stories themselves reflect not later time periods, but the time periods which Genesis and the um, uh, overarching Pentateuch convey. In this sense, there would have been one editor who brought them all together, one person who uh, brought all these oral traditions together and then also gave in their critique or what they thought were the emphases. And so some would argue that that was Moses, which makes sense. He would have brought them all together while wandering 40 years in the desert. It makes sense for him to have done that. Now, generally... If you have to press me, I would have no problem with the idea that Moses very well could have been the main editor of the Pentateuch as a whole. I, I find no reason to believe that Moses could not have been led to gather the different stories of the patriarchs um, and the Genesis narratives together from different traditions, which would have been handed down again traditionally with the 12 tribes while in Egypt. So if I say Moses throughout all this, if I say Moses says or something like that, it's because I personally have no qualm with him being the main architect, so to speak, of the Pentateuch, being led by God, I could even say. If not writing each story personally, then at least collecting them from the tribes during their wanderings. It makes sense to me to say that. Um, so we'll get to dating in a second. <laughs> Likewise, even if we do say that there were editors after Moses... The simple truth is, is that if Moses was the first one to bring them all together, then those who came after were focusing on his text, uh, perhaps editing it to make certain points more clear for later readers. And it's similar to what we do with our Bible. Um, we have the NIV. It's not the King James Version. We've updated the language to fit how we understand things. There's no reason to believe that later on they would have done the same. Added, like, change to Hebrew, for example, for certain reasons as such as that. Um, so, again, no problem, again, with Moses, I don't think. No problem with the classic tradition, which is that Moses was the one who brought him at least all together. So, just so everyone's aware, that's generally my view. All right. The second thing that we bring forth is the approximate date <laughs> of the book. This one's hard. Um, if the above theory of JEPD is legitimate, then most of these scholars date the Pentateuch beginning around the time of David and then ending in the exile. So they would argue it was altered and changed from 950 BC to sometime in 500 BC. And I just want to, I think I have a picture here, uh, Betsy. Yeah. Let me get this. All right. So this little diagram kind of tells what's going on. The oral tradition is passed down through the time of Moses all the way down to about the time of David. Right here, J, that's the Yahwist. He started collecting them and then started writing. Around the same time, the Elohim started doing the same thing. Eventually, they were brought together, and then the priestly writers started doing the same thing, and then finally the Deuteronomical writer did the same thing until what we have today, 
J-E-D-P, which is what we find in our Bibles. That's their view. If you notice, it starts around 950, the E starts around 800, the P starts around 600, the D around that time period too. And then eventually someone just brought it all together. That's their view. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying I necessarily disagree with it. I'm just saying that's what they say. That's what I was taught in school, for example. That's why um, someone here who went to seminary came back and was very upset because of what they learned in seminary and teaching. Uh, David had mentioned this before. Uh, and he said, oh, well, they're teaching things that no one ever taught me before. And it's very discouraging. It's, uh, they're saying that the Bible wasn't written how it was. This is part of it. It's because there's these different views on how they came together. That's why I'm talking about it now, so I never have anyone say that about me. Um, all right. Now, okay, so assuming that that's right, that would be how it's all dated. However, uh, if Moses were the one who was the main editor, the one who brought it all together and added various things, then it would have been between 1500 B.C. to 1300 B.C. So we're talking about the time of the Exodus, which is what we'd expect. Uh, with the patriarchal stories obviously occurring earlier than this, um, personally, Again, I have no problem dating the book earlier than later from all the things that I've read and tend to hold that view. Uh, and, of course, there's going to be many who would debate me about it and who would disagree with me about it, and I'm fine with having that discussion. All right, the third, who are the recipients? Um, this is a little bit harder because the Pentateuch isn't really a letter. Uh, if you notice, like in, um, in the New Testament, for example, we have the Galatians. Galatians was written to... Galatia. Uh, Ephesians was written to Ephesus. Genesis isn't like that. (laughs) There's no Genesis people. Um, There's just people. Um, Still, depending on the date of the book and who wrote it, there are many different perspectives on it. For example, there are those who would say that the books were written for those in the exile, and so they were all brought together for the exile people. Others have argued that it was written for the Davidic monarchy, so for David. Um, still others that it was compiled simply for the people of Israel. And this last point makes sense to me overall, though there are others who will again argue about why it was brought together. I think that that was the real reason, to teach something about God. Um, So the fourth, the purpose of the writing or the bringing together of all this, and this is a question, this is the question in a way. If it was written for David, then it was a way to legitimize his rule. Um, And people will say that, okay, Judah is emphasized, and Judah gets the scepter. Therefore, the person who brought it all together focused on Judah. Take it as you will. Maybe, maybe not. Um, If it was written for those in exile, it was a way to give them hope during the exile. Egypt and the exile look very similar, so they'll say, oh, Egypt, the whole thing about Egypt and getting out of Egypt through the exodus, it's really just a way of saying, we're in exile in Babylon, God's going to lead us out eventually. That's what they would say. Um... If it was written for the people, however, just in general, then it was meant to give them the foundations for their belief in Yahweh, the God of all. And personally, I believe that the author, the editor of Genesis, they were bringing about the stories, Moses, I'll say Moses, uh, bringing about the stories together and editing them to make a point. That major point is exactly what the word for Genesis means, and that's origins. Genesis means origins. In Genesis, we find the origins of the universe, the origins of sin, the origins of different peoples, origins of the people of Israel through the calling of Abraham and also Isaac and Jacob. And in conclusion, the origin of hope for the world. All five are found in Genesis. All five feature the origins for all of these things. Um, Genesis in particular gives us the founding for the world itself, which is God, and how he brings light out of darkness, which is also a common theme found throughout Genesis all the way to its conclusion in chapter 50. We are learning about people in these texts, but I think the main point is that we're also learning a, a great deal about God. And all of his ways. And so that's generally what I understand it to be the purpose. Now, um, something I didn't write before we get to the verses themselves. Um, You know what? The truth is there are many great Christians who hold different views about all of this. 
The guys that I mentioned at the very beginning, the guys I'm reading, they all hold different views than I hold. <laughs> they all hold different opinions. They hold different views about, let's say, Genesis 1 and 2 and the days of creation and what does that mean. There are different views about it all. I would say don't point guns at other Christians. Don't point guns at people who disagree with you interpretatively. Um, we can't do that. A lot of times there's going to be people who disagree with us about a text and you know what, that's okay. I would say there are certain things within Christianity, especially that we, can, we have to point guns at. We have to say, okay, no, you're outside of the bounds of faith. A lot of the interpretation of issues that we'll see about and we'll talk about, they're not that significant. Um, there are great Christians who hold, let's say, to an old earth view of creation. And they're wonderful. They're faithfully in the faith. Yeah. Um, and then there's those who hold to a new earth, or a young earth creation view. And they are wonderfully in the faith. This argument is a completely different kind of an argument than what we normally see. So just remember this as we go forward. I am going to try as best as I can to not push my personal opinion on anybody. I want you all to think about it for yourselves. Come to your own conclusions for the most part. That's my goal. Because I am about 50% sure of everything I read. <laughs> I have read about 250 pages worth of material just on Genesis 1 and 2. That's how much is there. It's a lot. And that's just a small dose. There has been more written about Genesis 1 and 2 than the majority of the rest of the Bible. Because it's that, it's just something that we're all talking about. Um, and so again, you know, again, I have teachers in, in school and in seminary and college who would hold to the JEPD and they're very firm affixed on holding that scholastic understanding. I tend to disagree. I don't really agree with it. Um, I think that there's a lot more writings that are happening. There's a lot more to happen within the next few years. A lot of archaeology is helping in regards to show that the Old Testament is actually more legitimate than a lot of those scholars thought past previously. Um, so again, that's the only thing I want to make everyone aware of. Be cautious with who you fight and why you're fighting. This is not one of those fights to take, I think. Uh, I think the most important thing that we can get out of Genesis 1 and 2 is the very beginning of it. And then after that, you can talk about it peacefully, but make sure it's peaceable. All right. Here we go. <laughs> I have a lot of trepidation about this. This is like... It was hard to write this stuff. It's hard to read all of it because I have no idea half the time. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I don't even know. Let's go. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The opening verse of the opening book of the Bible is epic in scope and detail. In one sentence, the entirety of the universe is brought into existence. These words bring about the origin story of the cosmos. Not only does it begin the story of the cosmos, but we notice that the whole point of the opening of Genesis is not even with the creation per se, but with the God who is the creator. It is from him that the created order begins. And because of this, we begin to see a glimpse of the character of God that he is beyond the created order. Likewise, we find that God is the first subject of the Bible. As the creation is an act, it's not the subject. Yet there are things to notice in the verse itself. First, the word God is actually in plural. Elohim. Um, some wonder why it is plural rather than singular. The answer to this is likely reflects the Jewish understanding of majesty. It is similar to how they would discuss something like water. Um, if there was a little bit of water, they would say water. However, if there was a sea, they would say waters, plural. So it is when discussing God. He is of such a character that the singular wouldn't do him justice for all the majesty that he has. He is that majestic. Some might argue, though, that the plural of God in this sense must mean that there were a multitude of gods. This, however, is not the case. If we notice, the word created is in the singular in Hebrew. As such, whenever Elohim is discussed, the God of Israel, all the actions are singular. When discussing false gods, however, they're plural. 
Um, Thus, the biblical context shows us that though the plural of God is used here, the singular word usages of um, the verbs especially recognizes that it is one God. Along with this, when the text describes the heavens and the earth, this is simply a way of describing the entire created order. It should be noted, however, that when heaven and earth are separated, they simply mean the heavens and the earth itself. Heaven reflects the sky or the abode of God, um, while the earth will mean the world, the abode of man, for example. Here, however, the focus is on all that has been created. And as such, we find it is God who is the one who accomplishes this. Now, before we go too much further, we also want to consider a general disagreement among biblical scholars. And that is the relationship between the first verse, verse 1, and the rest of the chapter. Some argue that the first verse is actually part of Genesis 2 and 3. In this case, it would be translated as, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form. Thus, for those who hold this view, the first verse is not standalone, but continues on into the next verse. This, however, is a minority view. Instead, most scholars believe that the first verse of Genesis is dealing with one of two ideas. The first idea is that the first verse is merely a summarization of what is about to happen through the rest of the chapter. In this case, nothing actually happens in verse 1. Instead, it is all just the defining defining of what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter itself. It's kind of like um, if you're reading a book and it has an introduction and it says... This happens. And then you read the rest to find out, okay, that's what happens. That's what some people will say. The second idea is what's called the traditional view. In this view, the first verse describes an act of creation separate from the six days of creation. Um, In this view, God created all the cosmos. And then once that occurs, then there are the six days of creation. Now, what's the major difference between these two views? Now, technically, the answer lies in whether or not matter is pre-existent before God created the world or not. In ancient times, different pagan religions believed that matter was eternal. And that through their power and work, the gods made the universe out of this pre-existent matter. Those who believe that verse 1 is a summarization could come to this conclusion as verse 2 describes God before the pre-existent matter uh, which he then shapes and forms. Yet, the traditional view would hold that nothing, not even matter, existed before God. In the traditional view, God creates the world ex nihilo out of nothing. There was no pre-existent matter to be shaped or molded. Instead, there was only God who is before all else. Technically, either one of these views can work in context. This is one of the many areas in Genesis we will encounter which um, some will hold different views about. Now, if pressed, I would say that the traditional view holds a little bit more weight, especially when we consider other scriptures, and we remember Colossians 1, for example, how Jesus was before all else. That's before matter, before anything else. Um, And other verses in the Psalms and things like that, they all seem to indicate that this view is correct, that there was an act of creation and then the six days of creation. As does what we see in Jewish literature before even the New Testament was written. Um, Because of this, I tend to believe that God did create everything ex nihilo, and the first verse describes that first event, that in the beginning God's created the heavens and the earth, um, that was the pre-existent matter coming into existence by God's own hand and out of nothing. All right. But that's just a view of mine. You can disagree. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Waters. Uh, now the next turns a bit. Uh, whereas the first verse details either a summarization of the first act of general creation, now the focus shifts on a specific creation. As we see, it is a focus on the earth, the world which we dwell. Um, 
Yet there is something to consider about the earth. We notice that it is without form and void, and these two words likely reflect two different thoughts. Both of these thoughts run contrary to what we know about God. Our God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, as we see here. Um, It's because of this some believe the gap theory. Uh, The gap theory states that in between verses 1 and 2, there was an extended period of time. Specifically, they even say, okay, this was when the fall of Lucifer happened, for example. And when he fell, the creation became what we experience in verse 2, a world which was without form and void, filled with darkness all over the formless deep. Um, There are some who hold that view, and they can. I'm not necessarily greatly critiquing that. But there are also others who do not find this to be a necessary explanation. Simply put, if the first act of creation is simply that general act, then the focus for the rest of the chapter is on what God specifically designs for a particular purpose, and that's his image. In this sense, there is no real issue with the world being formless and void and dark. Instead, it is just a reflection of the primordial world prior to specific focus of creation by God. Thus, the lack of form, the void, and the darkness was simply a matter of the world prior to the divine word being made known. This then leads to the understanding of the deep. And this is very interesting. Uh, In its most basic sense, this simply reflects the primeval ocean. Again, prior to the earth receiving its form. However, there are those who contrast this concept of the deep with other ancient views of the origins of the world. In particular, uh, one famous biblical scholar, Gunkel, argued that the word for deep is very similar to the goddess Tiamat. It's a similar word in ancient Babylonian origin story. In that story, Tiamat was a goddess who was slain by the god Marduk, and through defeating her, he used her carcass to create the heavens and the earth. Thus, Gunkel postulated that the ancient Jews were considering the same situation, or if not the same situation, then a similar one of a dark force, which God was against. Now, this kind of syncretism is interesting, But again, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, Simply put, the word for deep and the goddess Tiamat, they come from the same root in the Akkadian language. As such, there is no need to assume that the ancients were trying to syncretize their beliefs. Likewise, in the Genesis text, we don't find a hint that the deep has any power. It is not something which God must wrest control over. And instead, it is simply, it does his bidding which is completely different from what we find in the pagan texts. Likewise, it goes beyond the text to understand why the world was without form, a void, and a darkness. Instead, the focus isn't on that. The focus is on God and what he is accomplishing, rather than what had happened, if anything. Finally, we find that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In this point, scholars debate whether the correct term here should be spirit or mighty wind. Generally, it doesn't much change the point regardless if one chooses the wind of God or the spirit of God. As in either case, most scholars acknowledge that the presence of God was over the formless void. Thus, the formless void, the darkness, the deep, they're all kept in check by God. Uh, Further indicating it's not something with power, for God alone is the power in the story. All right. Main point. (laughs) The main point of this text is to give us the origins of the universe. As we find, the origin is found in God alone. He, being great and mighty, created the heavens and the earth. Thus we find the focus is on God himself, the great designer of the cosmos. He's the subject matter of these verses. It's all about him, even with all that stuff that we talked about. And I only came up with one application point, which is excessively long. (laughs) Sorry. Again, you're going to suffer with me. (laughs) Thank Ellen after the service. Um, Within today's text, we have encountered two very different things. The first is God. The second is the created order. As we see in the text, God is far above the created order. In fact, without God, there would be no created order at all. So it is, we find something interesting. And that is how great 
our God is to bring all the universe into existence. Now, before we go too far, one also wants to consider just how wonderful the Genesis origin story is in comparison to other origin stories of the same time frame. We already looked at the Babylonian understanding, how the god Marduk killed the goddess Tiamat to create the world. I mean, it sounds neat and all, but it doesn't really work either, does it? The truth is, we find many other creation accounts in the ancient world. In some ways, there are similarities between the Genesis account and the pagan accounts, but the truth is, while having similarities, it's the differences that are the key. For example, when it comes to Egyptian mythology, the gods do not come before the pre-existent matter. Instead, they are brought about by the matter. One Egyptian myth actually has the first god coming out of the mountain, and that's where he came from. Um, in this sense, we see the difference between what we read in Genesis and what we would find with the Egyptians. In Genesis, God does not come out of anything. Instead, everything else comes out of God. Likewise, there is a difference too in the general polytheism which was around during the same time period. For one, the polytheistic religions, such as those in Egypt and Babylon, Persia, Acadia, Sumeria, Greece, Rome, they all held the belief that the gods were connected in some way to nature. Thus, the Egyptian god Ra, you all heard of Ra, right, in some way? I don't know, maybe not. But Ra, he was associated with the sun. And so he was the sun. He was the power of the sun. And Sumer, the god An, was associated with the heavens. And his consort, Ki, was associated with the earth. We remember Aphrodite, the Greek culture. And she was for love and especially fertility. And the same with Venus in Roman culture. Thus, for these pagan beliefs, the gods were associated with nature. They were bound to nature. One worshipped the god then in various ways which would result in a blessing. And they worshipped them through the god's means. Um, thus, if you wanted children in ancient Greece, what would you do? You would go worship Aphrodite. And you would go to her temple and worship through intercourse. And that's how you'd get children. That was the way that they pleased and honored the gods. And if one pleased them, then the gods would look favorably upon you. Whether it was in human fertility or good crops or even safe travel. In this way, not only could one receive a blessing, but one also gave the god nourishment as well. It was a way to appease the gods and to help the gods remain strong. In this, we see a stark contrast between the God of the first two verses of the scriptures and the pagan deities found throughout the world at the time. Genesis does not count a multiplicity of gods, nor does Genesis describe a God in battle with other gods, nor is the God of Genesis a God who is reliant upon anything or anyone. Instead, God is the God of all, the creator of all, self-sustaining and far above creation. We find a God who is sovereign over all matter. He is sovereign over the world. Not only is he sovereign over this world, but all worlds, all the cosmos is under his sovereignty. If we take the next logical step that the, the scriptures do teach as well, then we come to another fascinating conclusion, which is just how powerful God is by creating all of it ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now we also find something interesting in the text, and that is that the universe had a beginning. While all other religions at the time assume matter was eternal, Genesis argues differently. Now, do you know what agrees with this, interestingly enough? Ironically, a source some would not expect, and that is modern science. Um, consider this. Long before the time of modern science, only Genesis's understanding of the origin of the universe acknowledged that the universe had a beginning. Only one. And it was not eternal in and of itself. Now, consider the following logic. Everything 
that begins to exist has a cause. If the universe began to exist, then what do we find? The universe has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it has a cause. What's the most logical explanation for that cause? It's God. For there can only be two things which would cause the universe to begin to exist. The first is something abstract, like numbers or shapes, and the other is a mind or being. Now, we know that abstract objects do not cause anything to exist. If you have a square, is that going to cause anything to happen? No, it's a square. If you put the number one up, is that going to cause anything? No, it's just a number. Um, Thus, it can't be that. The most logical conclusion, then, is that the universe began to exist by God. Now, some might ask, why can't the universe simply exist on its own? Well, we know that things that do exist either exist by the necessity of its nature or an external cause contingently. So what is something that exists out of necessity? Well, God and abstract ideas such as numbers or sets of numbers or even shapes. What are things that exist because of external causes or contingently on something else? You? (laughs) David, how did you get here? Did you make yourself? Didn't think so. Um, Mike, what about you? I walked. You walked? (laughs) I meant like, how did you come into being? Your parents. <laughs> Your parents. Um, you know, houses. They don't just pop up, do they? You've got to build them. Um, books. Books don't just happen. You've got to write them. Phones. They don't just happen. You have to create them or make them. Uh, things that exist from an external cause, uh, from an external cause that do not need to exist. We don't, you don't need to exist. Sorry. <laughs> You're here because... Something happened that you are here now. Congratulations. Me too. Um, But then the question is this. Does the universe exist necessarily or contingently? Does this universe exist because it has to exist or not? That's the question. The answer is it does not exist necessarily. Simply put, there is no reason to assume that the universe uh, should exist the way that it exists. Should it have formed differently, then nothing in the universe would exist. Did you know that? If gravity were slightly higher in the universe, slightly, or slightly lower, nothing would exist. Nothing. Um, When it comes to carbon, if there was just a little bit more carbon, or a little bit less, nothing would exist. Uh, When it comes to energy, too much energy, nothing would exist. Too little nothing would exist. Um, Thus, none of these are actually necessary components of the known universe. They don't need to happen. Thus, the universe does not exist necessarily. Any one of those could have been changed. Any one of those could not be what it is, but they are. What does this mean? It means that the universe exists contingently. It exists because something else caused it to exist. What could possibly cause it to exist? Well, again, the answer is something which is timeless, something necessary, something that is not material, something powerful, and something not contingent on something else. The only possibility? God. Now, logic teaches us something more. And that is that whatever caused the universe to begin existing must be the first cause. Guess what we found out in today's text? We find this to be the case. For the first cause is God himself. He alone can cause the universe to exist because he is causeless. Nothing caused God to exist. He exists necessarily. He exists simply by his own right. Now, what has modern science found? And I might not agree with all of what modern science says. In fact, I don't. But I want you to consider something. Like it or not, modern science has found the same thing. Big Bang cosmology, you know, that arch nemesis of creationism. 
Well, modern science has argued that the universe does, in fact, have a beginning. The main tenant of the Big Bang hypothesis is that it all started <laughs> with a Big Bang. Um, prior to the Big Bang, there was nothing. Now, where modern science gets it wrong is assuming that the Big Bang can simply occur on its own. For as we know from science, nothing can cause itself. And as we just saw, the universe cannot exist necessarily, but contingently. And I'm going to use another, I think I have another picture, don't I, Betsy? Um, cosmic yeah, do it. Yeah. All right. So l l I just want you to consider, <laughs> consider this fascinating thing. This is what modern science teaches. Big Bang happens right here. What's before that? Nothing. Modern science is telling you that the universe began to exist. Science actually argues the fact that the universe began there. Now you can take that billion, million years and all that and just put that aside for right now. That's not the point. The point is it began to exist. It was not forever eternal. It started. Um, and again, that's where modern science gets it wrong in assuming that it could do it on its own. It can't. All right, second point. Um, and by second point, I mean let's continue on with the main point that's been forever. All right. So, let's also consider some other facts along with that. According to the second law of thermodynamics, science, we all agree with this one, it states that entropy occurs over time. We see this in our own bodies. We see this in the world around us. As time progresses, we start to get older and more beautiful. I thought so. Just saying. <laughs> um, we feel the effects of entropy, don't we? We feel the effects. But you know what else does? The universe Scientists have recognized that the universe will eventually run out of usable energy. Why? Because once energy is used up, it ceases to be. <laughs> Can't just grab it back. Now, if the universe had existed infinitely in the past, let's say it keeps on going that way forever, and then eventually, you know, something happens that causes us now, what's the problem? Correct. If it was infinitely in the past, it would have all been used up by now. The energy would have not, we wouldn't be here today because it was infinitely in the past, therefore the energy would have been gone by now. As it is, guess what? The sun is still shining bright, isn't it? We see the heavens declare the glory of God and they keep on going. So, we learn it can't be infinite, it must have had a beginning. Again, law of thermodynamics. When we also take into account how physicists predicted the expansion of the universe, it further shows that the universe had a beginning. If the universe is continuing to expand outward, then it must be expanding from somewhere. As it is, this theory has been confirmed by many scientists, so again, the universe must have a beginning. All right. Who isn't surprised to find all of these things make sense in the world around us? The Bible. <laughs> all of this we can see in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. And then he created. Um, no other ancient text comes close to what we find in Genesis. Likewise, no other view past or present, offers a better explanation for the universe than what we see in this first verse. Um, thus, when there are those who argue for some other reason for the origins of the universe, consider what we talked about today. When others say, well, what makes the Bible different? Well, politely inform them that it speaks of God as creator, not as created, unlike the gods of pagan religions. It speaks of the cosmos as having a beginning, which is something modern science even argues. And it places God above the created order as the first cause, which makes sense philosophically. Um, the first verse of the scriptures speak to us in all of this in some ways. 
It beckons us to think about the universe in this way, to reflect on what it exactly means for this God to have created the cosmos. It should cause in us, I think, great wonder, a great sense of awe over this God who is the creator, who is far above all else. When we think about how large the universe is and how it is created by his, this magnificent creator, all that we should do is fall on our knees in worship over what he has accomplished in one verse. In six words. Maybe, maybe a few more. The end result for all of this should be nothing less than adoration, praise, and complete willingness to follow after our God. For the whole universe has been beckoned into existence, and guess what it does? It follows his decrees. It does exactly what he causes it to do. So it should be the same with us. We have been beckoned. And we too should seek to follow his decrees. Follow him wherever he has called us to be and in whatever manner is most pleasing and glorifying to him. While we certainly do not want to say that the biblical authors really had all of these thoughts um, when they're writing Genesis 1, the truth is the very first verse of the Bible argues something truly remarkable, truly different, than what we receive from any other source. It gives us the foundation for the universe itself. And therefore it gives us a foundation for all of reality. And that's God. In this we see the sovereignty of God on display. And his sovereignty should cause all of us to rejoice in knowing that he is our God. He is the one who created all things, has sought you, has bought you, and loves you through his son, Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who was before all else. So praise his name. For the Lord has brought forth this cosmos in all of its wonder for his great glory. And we can see just how glorious our God is from it. Now, this does, of course, lead us to the gospel of Christ, and you're kind of thinking, okay, how can the gospel be found here at the beginning? Well, challenge accepted. Um, Also, we also have another point, too, and that is that, you know, I didn't talk much about the second verse, did I? I didn't talk much about God hovering over the waters and the formless deep and all that, did I? Um, No. We'll talk about that next week. Cliffhanger. (laughs) Lots of cliffhangers today. Um, Still, though, you know, we're talking about the beginning, We're talking about the creation. We're talking about something that is so marvelous, so vast, so beyond us. I mean, scientists can try as they might, but they discover something new every day. And so when we consider all of this, we want to remember, our God is really, really phenomenal. He's very great, very mighty. Now the gospel comes in. The gospel of Christ, and guess what? It does begin with origins. It begins with the creation of the cosmos. Guess what? If there's no creation of the cosmos, we don't have Jesus and we don't have us. (laughs) We need the cosmos to exist. Otherwise, we're contingent upon it, really. (laughs) Um, And so when we consider origins, we consider the fact that God is the one who created. He is the one who brought it forth. He is the one who began all of it. And next week, we'll talk about what that means for humanity and how humanity was formed in the image of God. And what does that mean for each of us? That God would create all of this universe and then on the last day before he rests, the very last act of creation, create people like you and like me. Um, Phenomenal. But it all starts with our origins. And then next, in a few weeks from then, guess what else we're going to talk about? The fall. We're going to talk about how humanity fell out of the grace of God and how we fell into death and how in the end, we need redemption. And this redemption will be brought forth and we're going to guess what? You're going to find that out later on in Genesis. 
as Abraham is called, and from him all the nations will be blessed. Through Jesus. And then finally, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you something that I was going to wait for until the end of Genesis, but I'll talk to you about it right now. All right. Mike, I agree with you. We're living in, (laughs) we're, (laughs) well, no, you know, we're living in between Genesis 1 and Revelation 21, 20. We'll say three. Genesis 3 then. Anyway. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so the point is we're living in between that time period, right? And now what happens at the end of Revelation? Glory. Marvelous. We go back to Genesis 3 before the fall in Revelation. Genesis 50. Very last chapter of Genesis. We get a glimpse of it. We get a glimpse of it with Joseph, actually. When Joseph forgives his brothers and says, guess what? Even this darkness that happened, you meant it for evil. God brought it about for good. We're seeing a glimpse of returning back to the garden. It takes 49 chapters to get there. It takes a lot of bad people to get there. But we eventually get there. The whole gospel is in Genesis 1 through 50. You just need to look. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through the creation. We thank you so much that you have brought us forth out of seemingly nothing. That you have created us and that in the end, this whole created cosmos sings your praises. It all follows your will. It all does exactly what you purposed it to do. And so Lord, as we study the scriptures, and as we consider all the works that your hands have made, we ask that you would change us. We ask that you would show us more and more of your glory. That you would remind us that you are a God who is sovereign over it all, and that nothing catches you by surprise. That even though the story may take a downfall, we know that you can bring it back to where it was supposed to be by your own might. That because of you, you can bring light out of darkness. And so Lord, as we continue on, help us remember our origins and help us remember that we have a very good explanation for the beginning of it all. And that's you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.